Welcome, my name is Troy. One of the main things we do as a church when we get together is to read through the Bible bit by bit. And currently we're reading through the book of Genesis, thinking about the story of Joseph. Um, And something that happens when you read through the Bible bit by bit without skipping over any bits is sometimes you come across downright weird passages. And this is one of them. But this passage is part of God's word, it's part of the Bible, and so we need to stop and grapple with it and see what it teaches us. And it does teach us some really cool things. So please, follow along in your Bible as we explore it more deeply, and you've also got a sermon outline there that I'll refer to from time to time. But now, let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you that your word is powerful that it tells us the incredible and strange things that happened through your plan of salvation for the whole world. And we pray now you'd help us to grapple with this strange passage in order to grow more like the Lord Jesus and more in our faith and love and knowledge of him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Has anyone else experienced the first world problem of GPS malfunction? Good. It's not the bane of your life too, is it? It's basically the bane of my life. And that says that I've got a pretty good life, I think. But one time, uh, when I punch... So think about whenever you punch a destination into your GPS or your phone, and then as you're driving, your phone or your GPS, it says, ah, turn left here, and it'll be way quicker. And then you go, okay, sounds good. And then it is the exact opposite and turns out to be the dumbest detour that you have ever taken. It takes you down these narrow streets and you almost clip all these cars and pedestrians walk out in front of you and it's, it's just not a nice experience. You get to where you're going really, really late. One time I punched the name of a city into my phone and it came up with a city in the US and it gave me 50 days travel time. And I was like, wow. 27 of those days was a swim across the Pacific. <laughs> I was like, that's not what you're meant to be telling me right now. Sometimes your GPS can take you on a very, very wrong, strange, seemingly pointless detour. And I don't know about you, but when I come across passages like Genesis 28, I say this is a weird, seemingly pointless detour. But the wonderful truth is that this passage we're looking at today, it is a detour, but it is not pointless. This is the second week now. We're looking at the book of Genesis, thinking about the story of Joseph. And what have we seen so far? Well, we've seen God at work in a broken world and at work in a broken, awful, sinful family. This family starts with Abraham. God speaks to Abraham and he gives him these wonderful, special promises. I will bless you. I will give you so many descendants that you can't count them. I will make them a great nation and give them a beautiful land to live in. I will give them so much blessing that it pours out over to all the nations of the earth. Then God begins to fulfill these promises. He gives Abraham his first descendant, Isaac. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob. Then Jacob has 12 sons to four women. He's a busy man. And as we saw last week, this last chunk of the book of Genesis focuses on the story of these 12 sons, and particularly Joseph. 
How does Joseph's story begin? The rest of his brothers hate him. And so they sell him as a slave and off he goes into Egypt. And amazingly, God uses all of this to save this whole family from famine and from starvation. At the end of it all, this is what Joseph says to his brothers who betrayed him. Have a look, Genesis 50.20 on your outline. Joseph says, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. The story of Joseph is about God being at work in this broken world. It's about God who uses these evil brothers and Joseph's awful circumstances to bring about good and save that whole family. But what did you notice about the chapter that we just read? How many times did it mention Joseph? Zero. Not once. So how is this chapter about Joseph? Well, verse 1 simply says, it happens at the time that Joseph is sent off to Egypt as a slave. The focus then shifts away from Joseph and shifts to another brother, Judah, just for one chapter. So in Genesis 38, we get this strange detour from the story of Joseph. And I don't know about you, but my question is, well, why? Why is it here? Why is this strange Why is this strange detour here that seems to talk a whole lot about sex and deception? And why does it interrupt the story of Joseph? Well, let's have a closer look at it and we'll find out. Have a look. Genesis 38, verse 1 in your Bible. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adamalite named Hera. The first thing we learn is that Judah grows up to be a man and moves out of home. For whatever reason, maybe for business maybe for pleasure, he leaves his family in Hebron and moves to a nearby town, Adullam. He's off on his own, although he does have a local friend called Hira. But then in verse 2, we get to see a little bit of what Judah is like. What does Judah do? Verse 2. There, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and slept with her. Sometimes the Bible recounts events very, very quickly and briefly. But I think here it's doing it on purpose because Judah's actions are abrupt. He sees this woman and straight away marries her. He goes to the father and pays the dowry to marry her and then straight away takes her to bed. It literally could have happened that quickly. And I think straight away we get to see here Judah is a man very much driven by his sexual desire and lust. He sees her and says, I want her, and so he does what he needs to to make it happen. But the other issue with Judah's actions here is that the woman is a Canaanite. Canaanites are the people who lived in the land of Israel before it was the land of Israel. And you don't have to read very much of the Old Testament to find out that they were not very nice people. They were violent people. And they worshipped other gods. And Judah's ancestors, they had already commanded, do not marry Canaanites. So in Genesis 24.3, I've got it on your outline there. Abraham says to his servant, you will not take a wife for my son 
that's Isaac, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. And then just a little later in Genesis 28.1, Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him and commanded him, don't take a wife from the Canaanite women. Judah's ancestors, they'd already commanded them, do not marry Canaanites. Mainly because they worshipped other gods and would lead God's people away from worshipping the one true God. It's similar for us as Christians. As Christians, God calls us, if we have the choice, to choose a spouse who is devoted to Jesus. Why? Well, because if the number one thing in your life is following Jesus, giving him your all, and then you join yourself with someone who is going the opposite direction, then you are in danger of doing that as well. That's the plain and simple reason the Bible gives. If you put yourself in the position of being joined with someone who rejects Jesus, then you put yourself in danger of rejecting Jesus also. Don't, think, don't make things harder for yourself, is what the Bible says. But back to the story of Judah. Judah marries this woman and they have three sons. Have a look at their funny names. Their names are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. That last one there kind of sounds like Aussie slang, like, how's your Sheila? <laughs> That's what I think, at least. Try not to think of it for the rest of the talk, but oh well. God blesses Judah with these three sons. And then the story fast forwards a bunch of years to when Ur is a grown man. And in this time and culture, lots of marriages happened and were arranged by parents, particularly your father. One father would say to another father, hey, our kids should get hitched. And then they would make it happen. That's how it worked. So verse 6 says this. Have a look. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. So now we have Ur and Tamar married. Now remember, Judah is living among Canaanites. So not only does he marry a Canaanite, silly decision, he gets his son a Canaanite wife too. So Judah's stupidity continues to grow before our eyes. But then tragedy strikes. And we get these powerful words in verse 7. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. We don't know why. We don't know what Ur did. All we know is that from these verses, his actions were enough for God to say, I will punish him now. I will end his life now because of his evil actions. He will not live a long life. He will be cut off. And this is one of the first ways that we see God at work in this broken world. How is God at work? He punishes people for their sin, for their rejection of him. Often our initial reaction to a verse like this is, wow, God, really, that seems harsh. But the truth is, God is holy. God is the creator of the whole universe, and he created people to live his way. But when people turn to the creator and say, we don't care, that's offensive, isn't it? It's a personal rejection of the God who made us. 
Yes, God is abundantly merciful. Yes, he gives grace and time to repent. Yes, he sent Jesus to die for us. But he is also just and holy and he must do something about sin. And sometimes he does. He pours out his wrath on some people because of their evil. And I think this should serve as a warning to us to as far as is, is possible for us to remain holding on to the forgiveness that Jesus gives us. To hold on to the salvation that we have freely in him so that we can be right with the God who is just and holy. So, Ur dies and he leaves Tamar a widow. But then something unusual happens. Or at least it's unusual to our eyes. In verse 8, Judah says to his next son, Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. What's going on here? Well, this again is a big cultural thing of the time. Here's how it worked in those days. If two people got married, but the husband died before they had any sons, the woman would then marry her husband's brother. Why? Two reasons. First one, so that the woman would have someone to provide for her. In those days, women couldn't work and support themselves in the same way that men could, so they needed a father or a husband or a son to provide for them. It was a way of making sure that women were cared for in society. Second reason that they did this was so that the dead man's name and his inheritance could be carried on and honoured. The next brother in line would marry his brother's widow and their children would carry on the name of the dead brother. Their kids would actually be considered the dead man's kids. Strange concept to our ears, but it's one that made sure people were supported and that family continued on. And so this was the pattern. So Judah says to Onan, step up and have kids with Tamar. Do that for Ur, your dead brother. But verse 9 tells us that Onan knew. He knew whatever kids that he was going to have through Tamar, they would not be his kids. So yet again, this second strange thing that happens in this story, every time that they had sex, he would ejaculate on the ground so that Tamar wouldn't get pregnant. Contraception didn't exist in the same way that it does today then. And so Onan did it the only way that he knew how. And then because of this, tragedy strikes again. Look at verse 10. What Onan did was evil in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. God punishes Onan for doing this. Why? Doesn't that again seem a little harsh? Well, I think it has a little less to do with the action itself, spilling his semen on the ground, as the passage says, and more to do with Onan's attitude, his selfishness. Onan was too selfish to have kids for his brother. He wanted his own kids. He wasn't going to go through all the hard work of raising up kids only for them to receive Ur's inheritance and he didn't get it. Onan's actions, they're self-centered. They're looking only out for himself and not for his dead brother or for Tamar, his widow. And God hates selfishness. 
So he rightly and justly, according to his own purposes, his own will, punishes Onan and takes his life. So now there's only one brother left, Shelah. But by now Judah's starting to get a little bit worried. He's thinking to himself, maybe Tamar is cursed. And if I give her to Shelah, he's going to die too and I'll be left with no sons at all. So what does he do? In verse 11, he says to Tamar, go back to your father's house and live there. And then you can marry Shelah when he's old enough. But in reality, Judah has no intention of them getting married, which is pretty awful, right? He's basically saying, Tamar, your defective goods, I'm sending you back. He deceives her by promising her his son, and then never delivering. And in those days, if you were pledged in marriage to someone, if you're engaged, you couldn't marry anyone else. And so Tamar is in this terrible situation. She's a widow not only once, but twice. She's been mistreated by Onan. She's been lied to by her father-in-law. And she's unable to marry anyone else. No husband, no children, and unable to support herself. And so now things stay like this for a long time, until yet again tragedy strikes. And Tamar sees an opportunity for deception and revenge. Whoever said the Bible was boring? Have a look at verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. Old Judah has lost his two sons and now his wife. Even if Judah isn't a very nice guy, you've got to feel for him at this point, do you? don't you? Judah mourns for his wife and after a time he has to go on with life. The time comes to shear the sheep and so he goes off to a place called Timnah. In the meantime, Tamar hears about this and comes up with a clever, deceitful plan. She knows Sheila, her fiancé, is a grown man, and now Judah has no intention of them getting married. She hears that Judah's wife is dead and that Judah is travelling to Tinma. She sees her window of opportunity. She thinks, this is my chance to better my situation. So what does she do? She knows. She knows what kind of man Judah is, that he's the one who sees something he wants and then gets it. So she changes out of her normal clothes, which would have shown that she's a widow. And she changes into something a little more enticing. Have a look at verse 14. She veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the way to Timnah. She dresses up like a prostitute and puts herself directly in the path of her father-in-law. And then... The inevitable happens. Notice Judah's actions in verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Just like when Judah saw the daughter of Shua and instantly pursued her, now Judah sees Tamar and instantly pursues her here is a man driven 
that cons- and consumed by his sexual desire and lust. Judah thinks to himself, I don't have a wife anymore. I'm not married. I'm now free to do something like this, maybe. And I'm traveling, so who will know if I indulge myself this one time? And he's so blinded by his lust that he can't even recognize that Tamar is his daughter-in-law. And sadly, the actions of Judah here highlight the danger and the power of sexual temptation. The truth is that sexual temptation is all around us. And it only takes the smallest spark, the single look, the single thought to ignite the flame. All it can take is a look at a person or a stumble upon an image and then very, very quickly and purposefully things unfold. And that's why as Christians, the battle for us never stops. We need to be constantly on our guard against sexual temptation because it is everywhere and it only takes a look. Especially at those times when, we're, when our situation changes, when we're traveling, when there is no one else around, when our marital status changes. Those are times, as we see in Judah's example, where sexual temptation can get the better of us. But the Apostle Paul says, flee sexual immorality. He says there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among God's people. The example of Judah should teach us to always be on our guard, to flee. But back to the story. Judah says, let me sleep with you, Tamar. And Tamar continues to lure him and says, okay, but what are you going to pay me? Judah says, a goat. I can get you a real nice goat. Then she says, okay, but you have to leave me a security deposit. What will you give me? Have you ever filled up with petrol at the petrol station and then gone to pay and realized that you can't? It's happened to me once. I filled up, I went to the counter, tried to pay, nothing on my, my card. This was before the days of smartphones, so I couldn't move money into my account then and there. I had to go home and transfer money. But in order to do so, I had to leave a credit card and my details with the attendant. Then I had to go and then come back and pay. That's kind of what's happening here. Tamar says, give me a security deposit. Give me insurance that you will pay. And that's basically what Judah does. He says, I'll give you everything. I'll give you all my personal information, my signet, my cord, and my staff. They all would have been personal identification instruments. It's basically like he's handing over his whole wallet and saying, here, have it all. I just want to sleep with you. So Tamar's plan is working. So she says, okay, and off they go, sleep together in a very business-like fashion. And Tamar gets pregnant. And this is Tamar's plan coming to fruition. Judah then goes home and he goes and he finds a real nice goat. He's a man of his word, apparently. And he sends his friend Hira to deliver it and to get his stuff back so that he doesn't have to go and be embarrassed or caught out. But the problem is, Hira can't find her. So he asks some bystanders, where's the prostitute that hangs out here? And they're like, 
What are you even talking about? There isn't one. So here I can't deliver the goat. And so Judah, he's embarrassed. He's like, ah, man, what am I going to do? I guess I'll just ignore and pretend it never happened because he doesn't want to make a fuss and get caught out. Fast forward three months and Tamar shows obvious signs of being pregnant. So news spreads quickly and in verse 24, someone tells Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant. She's been sleeping around. Judah, the hypocrite, he is outraged. He is so angry. Why is he so angry? It's because if Tamar is going to sleep with anyone and have a kid with anyone, it should be Shelah, his son, so that Judah can have an heir. How dare she dishonor Judah and his family like this? You can tell he's a hypocrite, can't you? But now, Tamar enacts the last part of her deceitful plan. Remember, she still has Judah's signet, cord, and staff. So she sends them to him and says, Guess who the father is? Who owns these? Judah doesn't have to be very smart to be able to figure it out, does he? So in verse 26, he says this, Judah recognized them and said, She is more in the right than I, since I did not give her my son, Sheila. And he did not know her intimately again. Judah recognizes, I was wrong. I was wrong to treat Tamar like this. I was wrong to withhold my son, to not provide for her. And she has bested me. She has shamed me and shown me to be the unkind, lustful hypocrite that I am. You can imagine how awkward and controversial that it would have been from then on. Family uh, dinners would have been a bit strange. We all have a controversial story, don't we? But let's stop and think again about this story. Why is it here? Why is this controversial, strange detour here? The answer is because God is at work in this broken world. But how is God at work in this story? How does God work in this strange detour? One way that God is at work is that he is humbling Judah. God was working through these circumstances to humble Judah, to make him recognize that he is a sinner who needs to repent. And amazingly, I think he really is repentant here. He doesn't sleep with Tamar again. And the rest of the Joseph story actually shows Judah change a lot. He changes from an unkind, lustful hypocrite to a man who deeply cares for his brothers and even stands up for them. God is at work in the life of Judah, in his broken life, for good. But there's another way that God is at work, and we discover that in the last part of the story. In verse 27, we skip forward six months, and it's time for Tamar to give birth. And it's twins. Congratulations. Tamar finally has what she wants. Her plan comes to fruition. She now has a part in Judah's family. She has an inheritance. She has his support. But then another strange thing happens. When Tamar's giving birth, a hand comes out first. And so the midwife ties some scarlet thread and says, this one came out first. But then, and I don't, I don't pretend to know how this works, I'm not a doctor and I've never witnessed a birth. 
but the hand goes back in. And then the other twin comes out first. So they decide to name him Perez, which means breaking out, because he broke out ahead of the other one. And then they named the second one Zira, which means brightness of sunrise, probably because he had this scarlet thread around his wrist. Now, that just sounds weird, doesn't it? It sounds strange. But I think it's meant to show us one thing. That just as Jacob and Esau, their ancestors, they wrestled in the womb and they deceived each other in life. And just as Judah and Tamar, they deceived each other. So these kids, these children, these brothers, they are wrestling. They are deceiving each other. They carry on their family's characteristics. I think it shows us that this family, while they are God's chosen people, they are still sinful. They are still deceitful. They need God's grace like we all do. But there's an even bigger picture going on here, a bigger picture showing us God is at work in this broken world. How is God at work in Genesis 38, this strange detour? Well, first of all, God is continuing to fulfill his promises his promises to Abraham. God promised that Abraham would have countless descendants and become a great nation. But how could that happen if all of Judah's sons died? It couldn't. So, God made this happen. God kept Judah's bloodline alive even through the sin and deceit of Tamar and Judah. God was fulfilling in his promises. God was at work in this broken world. But then if we zoom out even further, we can see that even this we can see an even bigger picture as we gaze down the family line of Judah and Tamar and their son Perez. Because the whole rest of the Old Testament, the story of God's people, the story of Judah's bloodline is the story of his bloodline leading up to whom? Jesus. Despite Judah's sin, despite his unorthodox bloodline, despite that Tamar was a Canaanite, God was at work then for the good of humanity. This is the big reason that this story is here. This is why the strange detour from the Joseph story happens, because it's so important. Judah's descendants would have died out, and Jesus would never would have been born if this had not happened. This is one of the early pieces of the puzzle that fit together and leads to blessing and salvation for all the people of the world. Because Judah is the tribe that leads to Jesus the one who would never sin, who would never deceive, who was never sexually, immoral, sexually immoral, but instead would die on the cross for us and for our sins, for our deceit. Jesus died so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him can be saved from God's wrath and judgment, the same wrath and judgment that fell on Onan and Ur. That's what God was ensuring Hundreds of years before this happened. 